Um, thanks, everyone, for coming. Um, I'm Barry Pavel, and this is another uh, in our series of Cyber Risk Wednesday events. This one's uh, focused on how will our cyber future be different from today. I'm the uh, director of the Brent Scowcroft Center that um, houses the Cyber Statecraft Initiative, but also the Strategic Foresight Initiative and several others, and they're both very relevant to the discussion that um, we'll, we'll have today. Uh, this is a monthly speaker series that's designed to bring cyber experts from government and industry together with policymakers to examine topics at the core of the, the Cyber Statecraft Initiative mission here in the Brent Scowcroft Center. The event is also closely tied to work under, uh, ongoing right now uh, between the Cyber Initiative and the Strategic Foresight Initiative, uh, drawing on the uh, landmark document um, that we use for a lot of our work, Global Trends 2030. Matt Burrows, the director of the Strategic Foresight Initiative here, was the architect of several versions of that, um, um, and we'll certainly get into some of the pieces of that, but it's a, it's a key framework that we use for thinking about critical future trends that affect a lot of different discussions, but certainly this one uh, about cyberspace. Uh, and that world, that uh, document envisions a future characterized by a, a vast um, array of changes, um, including demographic patterns, geopolitical power shifts, and a, a broad set of trends that were characterized as individual empowerment. Um, and all of these megatrends are closely linked to the emergence of a, a range of new technologies from bio, biotechnology to 3D and 4D printing, um, quantum computing, robotic systems, and more. Technological innovation, in, in particular in the field of cyberspace, has the potential to be just as game-changing and disruptive as broad systems uh, have been in the past, economic, political, and social. And the internet certainly can be a driver, but also an inhibitor of a lot of these trends. So there's a sort of a series of two-way streets. The internet and related technologies have been safe, secure, and resilient enough for the past three decades of their existence to reshape nearly every industry and begin transforming the global economy. Cyberspace has developed from a separate domain to a system of systems creating a hyper-connected world and affecting pretty much every aspect of our lives. But what we're going to look at today is what are the different futures that cyberspace might, um, uh, what are the different cyberspace futures that we might see in five years, in 10 years, or in 20 years? There's a chance that it will continue to underpin a new wave of global prosperity um, that spreads well beyond the developed world and large cities into pretty much every area of the globe. It could become much safer and more secure through revolutionary technologies and good cyber hygiene, or at least maintain the current status quo as a relatively safe space to conduct business and to communicate despite cyber crime and espionage. However, the majority of the current trends point in a, in a much darker direction. Certainly, the, uh, uh, the increasingly pervasive internet might become a victim of its own success, as the growing dependence on complex IT systems overburdens users and critically exposes companies, governments, and individuals to systemic cyber risks. Uh, countries' protectionist policies, national firewalls, and virtual borders uh, might also create a collection of sort of isolated internet fortress fortresses instead of one global network. Or we're seeing a continuing increasing buildup in um, offensive cyber capabilities by nations and groups um, across the globe, uh, combined with data breaches and critical vulnerabilities, the, these might turn cyberspace into just a domain of constant conflict, constant disruption, 
uh, constant interruption. And so any of these scenarios might happen, or cyberspace might head, head into a direction that we just haven't, haven't conjured today, into, into unexplored, um, unexplored territory. Uh, the future for cyberspace will be driven by changes in usage, available technologies, the broader trends that I mentioned, demographic, national and international security, uh, et cetera. So by exploring different plausible cyber futures, we're trying to learn more about the, the risks and opportunities, uh, as well as the catalysts that are shaping them. And so today's discussion will hopefully better prepare us, better prepare policymakers and governments for um, what is to come. This event in particular is part of our project with Zurich Insurance Group and the University of Denver uh, Pardee Center for International Futures, focusing on assessing the balance between risks and opportunities in cyberspace. In the first year of this pretty big uh, project, big in scope, as well as other um, dimensions, we're using quantitative as well as qualitative frameworks to assess the impact of accumulating downside cyber risks on upside opportunities for economic growth. So more specifically, we are asking a couple of key broad questions, which we'll get into in some depth here. First, how would we know if, if accumulating downside risks of, of global and societal dependence ever started to outpace the upside opportunities? Or in other words, how might our cyber future look very different from today, and what game-changing discontinuities might be around the corner? In the second year, the team's going to turn from looking at cyber risks to looking at uh, the, a similarly framed question on geopolitical risks and on demographic, ri demographic risks. So with us this afternoon to discuss the cyber risk version of that uh, set of questions is an extremely distinguished group of experts, which I'm really looking forward to learning a lot from. Um, I won't go into their bios in detail, but I'll give you the top line introduction so we can get right to the good stuff. Uh, Jason Healy uh, is currently a non-resident uh, senior fellow, which is the first time I've ever said that. It upsets me greatly. Uh, he just started in, in a new position um, as a senior research scholar at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs uh, on the first of this month. Uh, and he has been the director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative here um, up, uh, in recent years. Richard uh, Stianen is chief research analyst for IT Harvest, the firm he founded in 2005 to cover the booming IT security industry and is also the author of multiple books. And then uh, on the far, in the far chair is Stephen Weber. Uh, he's a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, where he works at the intersection of technology markets, intellectual property regimes, and international politics. And he's a very frequent contributor and a fam familiar name to me and others who watch the debates on international politics and uh, US foreign policy. Um, so thank you very much to uh, uh, Christian Science Monitor Passcode. Uh, we're gonna, anyone who wants to tweet, and uh, we'll be live on Twitter um, for, the, for this discussion, please tweet from the hashtag uh, ACCyber. And we'll be f uh, and follow the account uh, at CSM passcode. And with that, I'd like to uh, turn it over to Jay to start the discussion. Great. Uh, thank you very much, Barry. So this has been tied into work that we've been doing here for a couple of years, and it should surprise those of you that follow our work um, on how the future internet might be different than what we have today. There's been a lot of good writing on it. Uh, Cisco came up with a paper oh, maybe five years ago now called the Evolving Internet. Microsoft just last year came out with um, Cyberspace 2025 that looks at this question of what, we shouldn't think the internet tomorrow is just gonna look like it does today with cooler technology. 
we're probably underestimating the, the scope of the changes that might, that might come in. So when we were doing this work with Zurich of saying, well, how would we know if um, the paranoia that we feel as security guys, right, where we say, oh my gosh, this is all gonna end in tears if we, if we keep connecting everything to this very unsecured internet, how do we know if we're right versus the, those that say the internet's gonna be awesome, um, the way Barry says, you know, dogs with jetpacks, you know, you're gonna have this amazing technological future. Um, and and how, do we, how can we figure that out? How can we know if that's starting to switch? And so we'll be coming out with that report in September, so watch this space. In, in the meantime, we were looking at the qualitative question of what are those big trends that we would wanna look at and that we would wanna um, imagine these different futures as? Uh, and there were so many of them we had to group them. For example, you were looking at, well, is innovation gonna continue the way it has? Uh, you know, what if the patent system breaks down or, or gets even, even clunkier than it does? Or what if the attackers don't just have the advantage, they have supremacy or, or the reverse? What if, what if the defenders, we get the upper hand? Um, what if you see corporate fragmentation of the networks where you know, you've got an Apple space and a Facebook space and, and they end up being less and less interoperable over time, or, or if nations do that, that your online identity is more defined by what country you happen to be growing in at the moment or from, and the answers and, and the internet looks completely different in different countries. Um, or what are the main players? You know, right now you're seeing that play out between FBI and Apple, and, and a few others on each side, you know, with FBI saying thou shalt not encrypt everything with, with the techies saying, well, of course we should. Um, we're very interested to see who wins that. You know, are there technologists able to face down governments or will, or will governments end up winning? Um, and there's all sorts of other things that add into that mix of the direction of privacy or the rest. So we needed to simplify that. So right now we're looking at four broad futures and these are corner cases. Um, we have one axis that's kind of the awesomeness of the internet which incorporates a bunch of the things that I was talking about. And the other axis is, who are the main players? And so we, the four features that we're examining right now are, we're calling um, one cyber Shangri-La. It is the dreams of Silicon Valley. Everything comes true. The internet looks broadly the same wherever you go. Um, we just have all, every time you hear a new innovation today of what's gonna come, we actually get that in, in, in our hands. Um, and things just work well. Um, you're able to have whatever online identity you want. We have the opposite of that is a very low awesome internet, which we're calling clockwork orange internet. You know, in, in, the, in the dream version, secure online access is a human right. It's just the thing that we're able to deliver to everyone. In the clockwork orange internet, secure connectivity is a luxury good because the internet is so filled with bad neighborhoods and every time we try and secure it, there's some group that comes by with ultraviolence and knocks us back down. Maybe it's nations, maybe it's organized crime, maybe it's just security researchers that say, that's interesting, let's show how unsecure it is. Um, but we just end up with the internet being far, far less interesting than it is now. You don't shop online, 
You don't th even think about voting online. You don't think about connecting with your friends online because it's just too likely that someone's going to swamp it. So that's the one axis. On the other axis, we say who are the dominant players. And we're still working this one out. Right now, we're calling it an independent internet, or for the geeks out there, we're calling it the full bar low, um, of an internet where every time the government says thou shalt, whether that's Egypt trying to cut, take the internet down, or the FBI saying that you, have to, you can't encrypt everything, we have to have a back door, the techies outsmart them every time. That the internet increasingly operates under its own rules without government interference, kind of like it did in the very, very, very earliest days. There are almost no boundaries. And then the opposite of that is we're calling Leviathan Internet, where your internet identity, your internet experience is driven primarily by the country that you're coming in from. And that you could have a separate standard, separate numbering systems per country that aren't any more interoperable. Great, thanks, Jay. And let me, let me just ask a quick follow-up question. I mean, um, where do you think we are now in, that, yeah. in those futures? And, um, what, and what's the general, where's the general sort of vector taking yeah, I us? Think there, I think there are two trends that I, that I see in that. The, the defenders have continued to lose to the attackers year after year. Um, I don't even know why anyone listens to us in cybersecurity anymore. We've been losing every year. Um, obviously, I think we're not getting things right. Um, so I think most of the trends are that the attackers are starting to run. Uh, I'm afraid the attackers are running away with the field, and that's bringing us down to a less and less awesome internet. Um, I think if you're going to look at innovation, privacy, you might see trends going in, in, in a similar direction. Um, and of course, we're also seeing um, more borders and boundaries um, and sovereignty imposed into, into internet than we had seen in previous years. Um, whether that's U.S. government serving paper to get information on Microsoft customers, or Microsoft data being held in Ireland, or whether that's everyone building their own cyber commands, or um, I think the trends are starting to push us down into that lower left mm -hmm. uh, of less awesome and, and more national. Okay. We'll, we'll pick up on a lot of your suggestions. During the conversation, Richard, yeah. what are your initial thoughts? I love your, your four potential futures, I guess. Though when I think about it, I've been, I've been writing a lot lately about the mid-90s and the internet because of the impact it had on the US military and the, the, what was then called the revolution in military affairs and the discovery of this networking thing, even though it had been a uh, government project. But it was only after AOL came about and the internet came about that the U.S. Navy started to discover the things they could do with emails, opposed to the teletype speed communication to, you know, to their carriers. Um, and you know, those were halcyon days. As a matter of fact, I think that that was the Shangri-La days of the internet. It was a wonderful time to be in the internet. Uh, it really felt like you were on this wild west, this frontier. And that led me to think about another frontier that uh, existed you know, a century before. Uh, and that was the one written about by Professor Turner at the University of Wisconsin. So maybe you know, he's in my blood because I grew up in uh, Madison. But uh, Turner's thesis was that what made America great was having a frontier 
that allowed those that didn't fit into the mold, the status mold of Europe, um, and you know, which of course slowly started to encroach on the eastern seaboard, allowed them to move and just leave and live free of the boundaries that they felt. And is reading the thesis that was the first time I ever discovered that pioneers weren't the ones that you know moved their family to the Appalachians or just the other side of the Appalachians, built a settlement, turned it into a town, built a city. The pioneers would, as soon as a settlement came about, the pioneers would move on. And they kept moving. Some in their lifetimes would move their family six times to get away from civilization. And whatever restrictions on their religious, economic, whatever freedom that they wanted to practice. So Turner's thesis was that that ended uh, based on data from the 1880 census. So in 1893, he wrote this thesis. Um, so I think that we've already gone through that because the internet is, of course, so much accelerated that we could go from 1996 when John Perry Bellow wrote his Declaration of Internet uh, uh, Independence, um, which kind of encapsulates this whole idea of you know, free internet, government keep your hands off, we're, we know what we're doing, we're technologists, and we know better than what policymakers can do for us. Um, so leave us alone. That might have been the height of it, and maybe the, the beginning of the ending was you know, the first spammers, two attorneys in uh, Florida who swamped the network news groups, all 9,000 of them, with their offer for green card services. Um, which, of course, led to the, the Can-Spam Act and the beginning of government regulation of the Internet, making it illegal to send an email to whoever you wanted to. You know, that's quite a restriction on freedom. Now, mind you, we're all happy with that. It was a pretty good thing to do, stop that. But did it really work? 98% of all email traffic is either spam or malicious traffic for phishing today. The reason that we get effective email is we've deployed technological solutions. So if you ever, you know, go browse through your spam inbox on Gmail someday to see just how bad it is out there, but Gmail and their technology is protecting us all the time. So I, I really feel that we're heading towards a clockwork orange kind of thing because we are, uh, I'm still an optimist that any individual and any organization can protect themselves. They can build walls about themselves and do data security well. There's amazing technology out there. And if you're the Lockheed Martins of the world, you can actually stop the attackers as they come in the doorway. And there'll be fiefdoms, there'll be uh, gated communities that allow you to live how you want on the internet and engage in commerce. Um, one of the signs when you ask, you know, how will we know when we're heading down that path? To me, one of the signs is when you go to a website and you know that where that website is based on some of the restrictions it places on you. And we're starting to experience that right now. When you go to a European website, there's an annoying pop-up that asks you to accept cookies. And mm -hmm. total different regulatory regime, and that's, to me, the very first indicator of you know, two different you know, liberal democracies coming up with two different sets of rules, but that's starting to break it up. And of course, you know, if you think about it, someday there will be countries that ask you to present an identity to get into a website hosted in that country. To get through the great firewall of China, uh, perhaps have you asked to show a national identity, you know, token of some sort, to get into Russia or out of Russia, same thing. There's special privileges for people in those communities to get out. So we're gonna end up with, with this chaotic world of, of different regions, different regulations, um, different enforcements of sovereignty. At the same time, 
the freedom lovers are still there, and we're still going to have cyber revolution, cyber uh, um, protests, um, and attacking groups and gangs and things that we have to protect ourselves against. And so if I'm reading you correctly, Richard, and please correct me if I'm not, it's sort of more of the same, we'll still be able to use it, prosperity will still be driven by the engine of the internet, uh, but we'll, you know, so I, when you were talking about different regional regulations, I, I sort of just, I just thought of the global travel system. You know, if I go to a country in the Middle East, there's different visa and other requirements than if I go to a country in the EU and go from one country in the EU to another, to Asia. I mean, so this is, there's still a pretty fluid system, even if there's different regulations. And sometimes I have to do a landing card, and sometimes, sometimes I don't. So, so how, my sense from you is pretty unrestricted, albeit with some different regional um, you know, parameters. Well, and then you've got the bad elements that are continuing to grow, as Jay was pointing out. So the cyber criminal groups will you know, gain in power and wealth and ability to start impacting us physically. Um, so you know, if, if there's a particular reporter um, who's making life miserable for them, they'll you know, issue a contract for them, something like that. So it gets mm -hmm. worse and more dystopian on the physical level. Um, and don't forget the Shangri-La version, at least the John Perry Barlow version of the internet, always meant that eventually national boundaries dissolve. You know, this is post-Cold War. We didn't have uh, an evil empire attempting to wipe us out. And the future was all rosy. We wouldn't need governments. We wouldn't need these big militaries and all the rest. And obviously, it, the opposite of that is happening right now. Mm -hmm. Can I add a yeah. question? I, I really liked it. Because uh, this came up at a conference I was at last week in Columbia. And someone was saying, well, if we have the fragmentation, um, it's actually a good thing it'll unlock value in the internet because you can then have these companies that will be intermediaries that can take the traffic between these different. And, and it struck me as a very dangerous, I mean, maybe it's possible and that would be okay. And someone in the audience asked, well, you know what, I know when I travel I have to bring this charger. Like, I need to bring an adapter so that when I travel to Europe, I can trade the power. And you know what, that's not that big a deal. And I think that, that fits in, I think, with your visa example. You know, different countries can have different um, bargains, and, uh -huh. and it's not necessarily that bad. But it's but, friction. But what if it? Yeah, and what if it's not like that? What if it's different size containers? So you know, right now we've got global container industry that you know the ships are taking the containers around all all around the world, take it right off the ship, put it right on the truck or the train, and then it goes right on through. What if different standards and these different mm -hmm. national internets or corporate internets get so that it's as if you had to take all the goods out of one container and then put it in another container that's useful for that country? I mean, that would just stop trade. Uh -huh. And if you now had to do that with not just going to a website, but all data that's traveling from, one from the US to Brazil or US to EU or e EU to Russia, that could really slow down every packet which stops from being a little bit of friction to a significant barrier to cross back to cross border trade. Uh -huh. Let me now let's let us now hear from uh, from, from Steve. Uh, just a couple of thoughts to follow up on this uh, very good discussion. I want to start um, by uh, uh, commending you guys that the, the use of scenarios in this kind of context is a really important thing to do. Um, I'm a big fan of that kind of thinking. I think you've illuminated a lot of things, but it is often the case um, with scenario thinking that the most important insights emerge when you mm -hmm. ask yourself, what do we assume is not going to change implicitly? Yeah. Uh, dogs with jetpacks 
do they still bark? You know, do they still follow you when you walk down the street? Maybe they just like hover above you for the walk or something like this. Um, it's actually what doesn't change. It's sort of interesting. There's a very famous um, ad that uh, goes around the community that does this kind of work showing a Hoover vacuum in the 1950s. And all the kind of Jetson Space Age things, this Hoover vacuum we're going to do. Um, but if you look closely at the ad, it's still a woman pushing the vacuum. And she's still wearing what my grandmother used to call a house dress. And so what was assumed was that this technology was not going to change the actual kind of economic, social aspects of women in the workforce. Big, big mistake. And in fact, fundamental to the way we thought about the technology. And so I want to ask our, uh, our, uh, us that, to make certain that we don't make similar mistakes when we think about scenarios regarding the internet. So in that regard, what's assumed to be this? Well, we, we, we're still talking about the big actors, nation states, mm -hmm. the corporations, the big corporations we know today, and even, frankly, the criminal networks we know today, many of which are quite large, sophisticated institutions, more like Google and Facebook than mm -hmm. they are like motorcycle gangs in Texas. <laughs> um, that may not be quite so stable. Kind of reminds me of a, um, a time in which, well, well actually, let me, let me take the term cybersecurity, actually, mm -hmm. and think about it in that context. If we want to sort of stretch ourselves out to even to 2020, what, what is cyber and what is security? I mean, even what we know today, what's not going to be connected to the network in five years? Everything is connected to the network. Mm. So maybe cybersecurity isn't cybersecurity, more it's just security. Mm. Okay. And now, if we ask ourselves, what is security when everything is connected to the network? Well, uh, thinking back to the uh, good old days, I like to say, before the end of the Cold War, um, those of us who worked in the, in the business had a very narrow definition of what security meant. It was very convenient, and it was conceptually clean, and it meant simple things like territorial autonomy and decisional autonomy for nation states. And then the Cold War ends, and suddenly the box opens up. And we start talking about things like environmental security, and human security, and economic security, and other such things. And um, it was conceptually messy but it also reflected a very profound reality in the world, that people cared enough about those other things to raise them to the same level of significance as territorial autonomy for nation mm. states. And so I think we should be asking ourselves, in the context of the digital network that we are connected to as human beings, what kinds of issues beyond what we already know are going to rise to that level where we're going to call them mm. security issues? And I'm going to put one on the table right now and say that the thing that has suddenly emerged on the consciousness of the media but has been brewing for some time, the employment effects of information technology on developed countries, putting at risk large numbers of jobs, including mm -hmm. most cognitive non-routine work that many of us engage in increasingly, I kind of think that in a few years, mm -hmm. we're going to call that a cybersecurity issue. Mm -hmm. And it's going to require a very different set of um, people, very different set of models, uh, a different set of dynamics. Uh, John Perry Barlow will probably still be out there doing his thing, although it is the 50th anniversary of the Grateful Dead, so you know, he may have give up at some point. Um, that issues like that are going to fall under the same kind of rubric. And if we treat them in the same way and still 
think of them as issues that technologists are going to mm -hmm. understand and react to appropriately, I think we're going to get caught. Um, second point, just briefly. Uh, it, it is really significant to take seriously the ideology that sits behind this thing. And you know, I was in Palo Alto in the 1980s, so I caught the kind of the uh, tail end of the homebrew computer club sort of thing. And I get it, and I appreciate it. It's a very different ideology than one encounters typically here in Washington, DC. <laughs> it is, first and foremost, libertarianism. Mm -hmm. And it's powerful. It's so powerful that it's blinding. Mm. And what's really shocking to me, actually, is to see the 21-year-olds that I occasionally encounter on a college campus as little as possible, but it does happen, <laughs> um, adopting in a really unthinking way this libertarian ideology, which makes no sense for the world in which they live, but in fact sort of inculcates it into the, their sort of consciousness directly through their use of technology and they're sort of sucking up of the kind of the discourse that goes around um, the kinds of things that we talk about. Um, that's really important because it puts a major constraint on one issue that I hope we'll talk about and I'll finish with this point. The issue of trust. When the internet was first deployed, it was deployed in order to allow computers that were operating on different operating systems but were run by people who knew each other to communicate. Nobody was sending emails that, uh, that the receiver didn't want. <laughs> the emails that you got only came from people you knew. It was a, a network of human trust. Well, that architecture then expanded, as we know, to the entire world. Now we have to be able to receive emails from people we don't trust. And that's the, sort of the fundamental economic or socioeconomic problem that this network confronts. We have tried to square that problem with the ideology of libertarianism that says everybody should be anonymous and be able to do anything they want to do and connect anything they want to this network. Now, in my world, I see an enormous tension between those two things. Yeah. I can't get in my car and drive without a license plate and a registration and other such things. But I can go on the network and do anything I want with any, without any of those things. If I were on a highway where people were allowed to drive whatever they wanted to, and I didn't know who they were and they had no insurance, I'm not sure I'd ever get on that highway. Mm. Right? And I think you, you've captured yeah. some of that dynamic. Um, I think one of the most important things that we need to be able to do in confronting scenarios like yours, James, is to um, ask ourselves, what are the really important choices that we're just not facing right now. And for me, one of those really important and, and, and very sensitive choices that I really wish I didn't have to face is the question of whether or not we're going to permit ourselves and others to continue to engage in the activities that we engage in on the network without identifying ourselves. Is there a solution where you can find trust in that world? Mm -hmm. I don't know of one. I'll stop with that. Yeah. Excellent. Lots of, uh, raised lots yeah. of questions in my head, but Jay was just itching to Yeah, and I love that. And the, what talk. choices aren't we facing? I really love that as a question, and I think that's the kind of thing that we can cover in the strategy series. Uh -huh. You know, here from my perch in, D in D.C., it's, well, what if we're in a, what if we can't have it where we both have freedom of our using our own cyber capabilities 
and having a free open internet that, that reflects American values. We might have to choose yes. and, um, if we wanted to survive. And I really liked, you know, for so long we came into this li uh, libertarian determinant, technological determinism. You know, if you're going to use this technology, then of course it forces you down freer speech um, and all sort, you know, and more freedom um, because we're taking, you know, we're taking these frontier values and we're just piring them into technology. And and we've clearly seen it doesn't have to work that way. Mm -hmm. Putin and plenty of others have been able to take these technologies built on in these libertarian values and use them for dictatorial purposes. And, and, I, and the one that I'll ask of what gets snuck in under cybersecurity, I think a place that you can see this in the totally opposite direction you, when you brought up is AI, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, paper I wrote 15 years ago in Masters was what happens when we get to the future and we have AI and what we then decide to do with it. I never published that because it was too crackpot. And you know now it's come in the kind of mainstream mm -hmm. of well maybe in cybersecurity we have to think of what we're going to do to unplug the you know the machine that gets too smart. We're certainly seeing developments as the next level of tools required to counter targeted attacks involves something that is quite often termed you know big data and analytics, mm -hmm. which is you know setting the stage eventually for AI to be applied. So given enough mm -hmm. data, given enough processing power then the computer is making decisions about what's good and what's bad behavior on the yeah. network. And we're only at the beginning stage now. Most organizations are deploying technology that allows them to have a window into that, mm -hmm. and the operators make decisions about what's good and bad, mm -hmm. or takes the machine's judgment, um, which is all well and good, and that's gonna keep the cybersecurity industry well-fueled mm -hmm. for the next uh, two years before the rise of automated or autonomous attacks. Yes. So we've I seen one example, point. right? I we've seen point. We've seen Stuxnet, so we know it can be done if there's enough uh, reconnaissance beforehand. But at some point, we're gonna have to block things as they're happening, and we'll have seconds to respond. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I love this last point, because for example, I mean, DOD is really, really proud right now because they've got their cyber mission force, right? We're gonna have 6,300 whatever, People, they're there, they're gonna be doing these missions, it's gonna take us a couple of years. And when I ask question, like what you just asked, what if the future of cyber conflict in five years is autonomous or automatic offense that then has to have autonomous or automatic defense? All of a sudden, we're gonna have 6,300 people that don't have a lot to do. <laughs> um, and when you ask, I don't get a lot of thinking about these different futures and how they might affect the decisions that we're, that we're making today. At the same point, Jay, just to bring it back to the very human element that we engage in on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, Stuxnet got in through a thumb drive. Yeah. Some mm -hmm. person took a thumb drive and plugged it into their USB mm -hmm. port. Right? It's a very famous uh, tale that goes around, and so far as I know, it's actually accurate, that it, a RSA security conference in 2013 just some researchers threw around a bunch of thumb drives in the parking lot to see if anybody would pick them up and throw them in, and about 41% of those thumb drives got plugged in yep. at a security conference. Yep. And well, the an number RSA. went up. <laughs> they did it again. Is it, huh? They did it again. They put official logos on those thumb drives, and the number went up to like 70%. So we have this sort of like super high-tech attack approach, and we also have the really, really low-tech taking advantage of human beings, which are ultimately, as we all know, it sounds trite to say it, the weakest link in the network. Mm -hmm. I live on a campus. 
that doesn't even have two-factor authentication. I haven't changed my password in 22 years. Nobody has asked me to change my password what in is it? 22 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you already know one, what two, it is. Three, it's yeah. the name of my cat followed by one, okay. Perfect. which is everybody's password. Right? Yeah. But nobody's asked me to change it in 21 years. Well, universities are you know, the cybersecurity ghetto of the world. Right, so. and we know yeah. what, what happened two days ago, yep. Penn State hacked, right? right. So um, at the same point as we have the super high-end kind of stuff that we're talking about, there's also, there is the yeah. low-hanging fruit. There are people with Windows XP out there that don't even know what the word patch mm -hmm. means. Mm -hmm. Steve, let me, I, I really loved your statement about um, cybersecurity becoming security. Because when we, we do a lot of uh, trips to Silicon Valley, and we hear about all the latest technologies, the ones I mentioned in my initial remarks, and all of those technologies are gonna be connected on the foundation of the internet. Mm -hmm. And what it, what it, the image it evoked in my mind was, um, and I wanna ask all of the speakers here about that, was just uh, maybe, maybe the word that comes to my mind is stability. I mean, mm -hmm. our entire sort of, the workings of our entire society will in, in our own personal lives, our own personal bio data and health yeah. data, our interaction with robots who help elderly. Um, everything we do increasingly will be sort of tethered to a very unreliable domain. And so it, to me, it's a, it creates this image of instability in our lives. Mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't get to work today mm -hmm. because of X. And I couldn't finish the paper for the boss because of Y. And just almost a very constrained and contested and congested mm -hmm sort of daily life. Is that the future that you're seeing as well? You know, it, it, it's very interesting, Barry. I, 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 I could see that future. I think the, um, the part of it I want to highlight is um, the different demands it places on individuals and the way they sort of interact with their security environment. And sort of thinking back on the Cold War, for those of us who were not living close to um, missile silos in Nebraska, or say the Newport Naval Station or something like that. You know, we were involved in this enormous security competition, but it didn't touch our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it didn't affect what I did any day. The first time I saw someone with a gun was on September the 20th of 2011 in an airport, right? It just like, it was not visible in my life. It's not like you're living in Israel where it's all around you all the time, right? Um, the world you're describing is a world where those security issues are front and center for every mm. single person all the time. I, I don't know how people respond to that. Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe actually it makes us much more responsible citizens. And we become much more aware of our responsibility for contributing to this aggregate good that we call mm. security. And maybe we just don't know how to deal with it and we separate out. But I yeah. think it, it, there's something about the psychology of people mm. mm -hmm. that is really important to look at there. And Barry, you've identified a kind of uh, continuous theme that, that I use to track the security industry. And I've, you know, after all these years, you won't see me publishing anything that says quick patch because there's a new vulnerability. Um, and I won't get involved in an Internet of Things discussion about how we have to design security in first because it's not going to happen. You can't ask somebody to develop a new thermostat and tell them to design security in with strong two-factor authentication, encrypted core, hardware security modules. They're not gonna do that. They're gonna just launch something that has the features that they think the market will buy. They'll sell it. There'll be a million of them. Some hacker will figure out how to infect them all and bring it all down. Hopefully by that time, whoever created whatever this Internet of Things is, 
Um, hopefully they've got the resources to fix it and get back and get back yeah. that resiliency. And that's kind of the, the yeah. hope as we go forward, as we become more dependent on everything connected to the internet, critical infrastructure, traffic lights, train systems, um, that the early disasters are small yeah. enough that we can pick ourselves up and move on and start incorporating security. A hacker claims, uh, or the FBI claims that a hacker claims that he can hack an airplane. Just thinking of that. There should be quite a lot of activity going on mm -hmm. in airplane uh, manufacturers today to demonstrate, one, that that couldn't happen, but two, look more closely mm -hmm. at connections between in-flight entertainment systems and control systems on airplanes. This, to me, just picking up on this theme and taking it a little further, and then I want to go back to a root issue, and then I'll, I really would like to open this up to a conversation with everybody in the room. Um, I mean, taking this a little further, though, I, I can't imagine the trend seems unstoppable, as you were suggesting with the thermostat. More and more of our stuff in our lives is going to be connected, and I don't see only good actors. I wish, I wish everybody thought of good, you know, only being good citizens and with good cyber hygiene, but the incentive structures for those who want to do disruptive or, or, or malicious things are only going to increase and proliferate. Mm -hmm. I mean, many more opportun opportunities for, for a lot of bad mm -hmm. A lot of bad stuff. I mean, just taken to the extreme, and I mean, the Internet of Things goes well beyond devices to airplanes, driverless cars, uh, you know, my health records, uh, my parents' elderly care. It's good to keep going. Bodies, Bodies. with implantable devices. Yep. Um, I mean, that trend seems very clear to me. And so that's a, it's a really bad sort of just daily set of activities in life. I mean, do you see a different, does anybody see a different outcome? No, that's the direction, um, and you buy yourself time. You won't see attacks against systems if you don't tie any monetary gain or potential to those systems. So all payment card tricks that people come up with, those will be attacked right away. If it's a, a new way to swarm drones and do some sort of agricultural mm -hmm. thing, long, long time before they're attacked. And the hacks will be at conferences where they show the vulnerability rather than somebody actually doing damage mm -hmm. with them. So it's, you know, it's not a, a single track. You've got to follow millions of tracks at once. Yeah, and, and you hope it's not systemic, right? You hope, I mean, like a payment cards. No. I mean, payments have been bad, but people still generally trust their cards. Mm -hmm. And the liability is helped out where they say, oh, you know what? Like, mm -hmm. I got called fraud on the account. I got canceled. And we still generally have faith in that. Mm -hmm. And now we're, gen we're, we're getting the security fixes in place in enough time to kind of save the system. Um, and we hope that we're going to keep that going. In, in your initial question, um, and it really struck me in what you were talking about and the way people deal with this, I'm really fascinated by the generational. Um, a lot of the ways that we looked at, for example, the relationship after Snowden, in DC, we tended to look at it as statist. Well, Germany's pissed at us. Japan isn't, for example. Um, you know, we're looking at as an international issue between governments. I'm curious, generational. Right? And how that's going to play out. Are the younger generations going, what's their relationship with security going to be? And not just cybersecurity, like a post 9 11 generation is seeing airport security and are more used to seeing guns than you and I were. And I'm curious how they're going to adjust to this, just like I wonder how they're going to react to, they're going to react differently, the digital natives, to Snowden revelations. To them, it's not just something that happened, it's probably going to be one of those, one of those moments. And one of the terms I like overall for this is can we have a sustainable cyberspace, a sustainable internet? So we have sustainable practice. What's the carrying capacity of the internet for attacks? 
And because security doesn't have a time horizon on it. Sustainable does. So we can say, good, we want our grandkids to have an internet that was at least as cool as the one that we had. It was one awesome that's going to be um, an engine for innovation, GDP growth, job growth, um, as it was for them, as it is for us. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it frees up your mind to think long, long term. Let me just push the panel a little bit on this. I mean, the complexity, so, so the, the, Jay did a report with Zurich Insurance last year that uh, uh, identified uh, cyber risks that are sort of accumulating in the system. Uh, even if each company and entity attends to its own cybersecurity, there's about seven pools of risk, and you can take a look at the report, that are sort of accumulating in the system that are not really being well attended to. Uh, Internet of Things was one of the uh, pieces, but there were others. I mean, it strikes me that this world that we're painting here is such a complex system of systems with so many interconnections, so many complexities that even if we get the early disasters, hmm. this is just going to be one disaster after another. There's, we're just going to miss a ton of a ton of interconnections that we had no idea of the cascading sort of ripple effects when someone does something here and it has an effect over there. I think some of that is probably already happening. Barriers are happening under the radar screen and it's taking attacks on our everyday, whether mm -hmm. it be the 3% that is fraud on payment cards or whether it's the opportunity cost of all the things that we don't do in healthcare because mm -hmm. we don't have confidence in the network, right? It's already mm -hmm. sort of this sort of bubbling cauldron underneath mm -hmm. which is kind of taking this kind of tax on everything we do. Um, we don't see it because it's covered up. Well, I shouldn't say it's covered up. It's actually overwhelmed by mm -hmm. all the cool new stuff happening up here, right? That's like, look at yeah. this, you know? Um, if this slows down, then all this other stuff starts to feel like a greater mm -hmm. percentage of the activity and I think becomes much more salient for people. Mm -hmm. we, and that's short of any kind of massive, momentary, one day big disaster that congeals everyone's attention and says, boy, look at this crazy stuff we've been mm -hmm. doing. It could mm -hmm. happen that way too. I mean, we want to create sort of a, a growing sector of society that just gets off of it. I mean, that just mm -hmm. because of all the disruption and insecurity, could, could it create sort of a cleavage in, 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 the, in sectors and society, or is it just impossible? Well, I actually think the cleavage is going to be a little bit different than that. I think it's going to be uh, between those who you, you called uh, a, a, a sort of security a luxury good. And I think that's right. I think if you're wealthy enough, you can either buy your way to a secure network, or you can hire people who are sophisticated enough to create it for you. On the other hand, if you're, really, if you're at the bottom of the heap and you're poor enough, in some sense, you don't have anything worth stealing. In fact, you don't really even have any identity worth monetizing through advertising. Mm -hmm. So at either extremes of the spectrum, in some sense, you have that option. For us in the middle, for all of us in the middle, I'm probably not. Yeah. yeah. And, and we see that in the futures that I talked about. Some of those are deeply unequal worlds. I mean, if you end up with nations having strong borders on the internet, I think it's going to be good for those countries or economic blocks that are big enough that they can support their own infrastructure inside. They can have enough sovereignty. They've got submarine cable landing stations. They've got DNS root servers. They've got um, uh, internet exchange points. They've got an, um, uh, certificate, digital certificate uh, issuers and the rest. Um, so you're going to be fine if you're them. You're going to be fine if you're Brazil. You're going to be fine if the United States are, are tied to one of those blocks. And if you're Ecuador, all of a sudden, these borders come up, and you just don't have the money. You don't have some things like submarine candle landing stations and the rest. And then 
you, you show up as you know, waving an Ecuadorian passport online, and you're just going to get ignored because you, you don't have the kind of sovereignty that those that are rich enough, large enough to be able to support. I think it's really bad for the low, for the yeah. low income and low medium in, income countries. Let me ask the root question, but in the meantime, if anyone has any questions, please uh, raise your hand and I'll, I'll start picking on people in order. The, a key theme, I think, that's underlying a lot of this discussion so far is an internet where offense is stronger than defense. So that strikes me as really, really important, even if it's for uh, elite networks mm. to get defense better than offense. Do, you, do, do any of you see any way, if we're going to have a, the Shangri-La, that future that Jay is, is trying hard to, to achieve for all of us, do any of you see any way, policy, you know, other than the, the obvious, to get defense better than offense? Do we start a new internet from scratch? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What do we do? I have difficulty with that question because I see um, organizations implementing good security every day. And it, it's amazing and it's way far ahead of you know, what most organizations do. But, but in this, you know, this industry, the cybersecurity industry has only existed for 20 years. Um, there's always leaders and laggards. Mm -hmm. And the laggards uh, actually have a short-term benefit. They don't spend any money mm -hmm. on security until they're whacked and then they've got to spend a lot of money on it. Um, but the leaders are spending all that money all the time and they don't experience that devastating mm -hmm. breach, the loss of faith in their brand, et cetera. So, so I have trouble you know, envisioning a, a need for another internet. If, to answer your question, Steve, about what won't change by 2020, which is only five years away, mm -hmm. um, I think we'll still have TCP IP. We'll still have IPv4. Mm -hmm. IPv6 will still be a pipe dream. Um, and I think Darn. we'll have you know, the basic routing infrastructure that we have today. And, and right. DNS is one thing that maybe we'll figure out you know, a better way to do things. Uh, because that just layers on top of everything mm -hmm. else. Yeah. So we just change it and get yeah, it done. That's really interesting. And, yeah, and it's interesting. The, um, you can imagine a disruptive technology, you know, like a single disruptive technology that really helps the defense. You know, we just invent something, and oh my gosh, you know, we are just way better. Um, or, unfortunately, I think it's more likely that a disruptive technology is going to help the offense. Yeah. But you can imagine sloper. Uh, I love process innovation. I mean, on our, on for defenders, intelligence-driven operations of saying our defense is going to be run by the by intelligence, who's trying to get us? Presumption of breach, kill chain. There aren't, those aren't technological innovations. Those are process innovations. E creating a CISO position, creating a CERT. Those are all process and organizational innovations since 1988, 1989, um, that have really made big differences. As big a difference, if not more, as the technological innovations of idea, intrusion detection systems, firewalls, um, antivirus, um, and the rest. So I'm interested, you know, can we continue this onwards? And I get a lot of skepticism, well, defense will never get better than offense. But I'm heartened as someone that loves military history, right? In almost every kind of conflict since we first picked up stick and stone against one another, it's flipped, right? I mean, if you're in Napoleonic age, then boy, cavalry and offense dominated the battlefield. And then, you know, American Civil War, Boer War, um, and then into World War I, defense was dominant, objectified by the machine gun. And then everyone thinks defense is dominant until a combination of technologies and usage, radio, aircraft, and the tank, 
and the doctrine that tied them together than put offense. And it's happened in every field of human conflict, except nuclear and maybe space. Great. Well, why don't we start opening it up? I have a first question right there, and then a second one right there. <laughs> no, the first one was the gentleman right there, yeah. Thank you, uh, Bill Pope from the State Department. Thank you all for coming. It was very interesting. Um, up to now, we've had this whole issue of, of cat and mouse. Um, for example, North Korea going after Sony and then the Sony IT people trying to find and plug, or some large country, uh, unknown country, uh, going after the State Department and, um, and uh, State Department IT people trying to plug those gaps. But does all that become moot if these reports that I've read about these quantum computers become real. If the quantum computer is so infinitesimally more powerful and faster that it can break any, instantly break any um, password, uh, whether it's cat plus one or, um, or thousands <laughs> of, of characters long, then is it all moot? And do we have to go to gated communities or start using snail mail again? Or is there some way that the, that the uh, defense can, can catch up with that? Let me broaden that question. So is, is quantum the end of encryption? Um, what will its impact be? But are there other even just technologies that you see as even a glimmer that might sort of ha you know, have a discontinuous or structural effect on, on cyberspace as we know it? Well, quantum is certainly the, the bugaboo that's often raised to challenge cryptography. Um, but if I had to add to my list of things that will stay the same in 2020, that is a quantum won't exist yet um, in, in any meaningful way. Um, other than you know the, the same place that uh, breadboard computers were in the 60s when I was growing up. Um, but there are potentials for other disruptive types of technologies, uh, very finely focused EMP, um, other sorts of uh, electromagnetic yeah. interference and snooping technologies that could really start interfering with things. Interesting. Um, yes, the lady right there. Um, hello, Sharon Bovat, Voice of a Moderate. I have a quick question about the intelligence agencies and hacking. We have 17 intelligence agencies, and um, the Army and a lot of them are employing hackers. Now, I've talked to some world-class hackers, and the, the, the frustration is, is that you could have friendly fire. We can have incidents from having so many hackers. And I would talk to somebody, and they believe in the intelligence community that five agencies having hackers is enough. But how do you choose which five? Pull names out of hats. How do you do that? But so that is my first question is how do we regulate this hacking because they've decided to treat cyber issues individually and not create like a cyber agency. And then the other thing is, is that with China and the routers, with them implanting something and having to clean that up, what is the issue and has there been any um, punishment for China for doing this? Thank you. So first question, how do we deconflict interagency it sounds like on... Uh, certain activities. Yeah, I actually feel pretty good on the U.S. side. One, this is one reason why we think the Chinese are so aggressive, because you'll have six, seven different Chinese groups operating without coordination inside the same U.S. or, or, or other companies. Um, and, and that's why it's one of the reasons it's perceived as so aggressive to, to us and to others. On the U.S. side, you generally don't see that anymore. Um, NSPD 38 came out 2003 
first started laying out this coordination mechanism to make sure that this was going, that this was going to, um, that that wouldn't happen, uh, or at least not as much. Uh, that's, that's been updated since, um, and you've got um, uh, Cyber Command and others are really trying to focus on the military command and cr control on this. You've had good coordination or significant coordination um, between NSA and CIA, which are the main ones. And, you don't, and you're not seeing um, the military going out and doing a lot of attacks. I mean, uh, to, for any kind of significant attack, it's the president that has to say, yes, you go do this for a big attack, or the president that has to sign off on a finding if it's a covert action. So there's enough breaks in the system, enough coordination in the system, that out of the many reasons that I can worry about it, uh, I'm, le I'm much less worried about, about that part. And then I'll defer on the China. To the, the China thing is fascinating, especially the timing. So here you had China using essentially a, a kind of reflection DDoS attack against uh, nation state critical infrastructure, our repository of open source, open source and commercial source code developers was pretty much fighting a constant battle over a weekend, starting on a Friday all the way through into the next week. Mm. On the Monday of that next week, the president is, you know, gets together with Justice, Treasury, and the State Department and announces that there will be sanctions against nation states that engage in that type of activity. And as you pointed out, the reaction so far has been zero. You know, nothing mm -hmm. that we publicly know. Mm -hmm. Right. And, well, again, it points to the, um, the, the immaturity of the discourse, which I think needs to yep. be addressed. I mean, the attack on Sony is troubling. Um, it's first referred to by the president as cyber vandalism. A few days later, it becomes, for some reason that I, I don't have insight into, a issue of core national security interests. The attack on GitHub barely makes it to the New York Times, mm -hmm. right? But in some sense, it's a much more fundamental mm -hmm. risk. And, represented a really different kind of a uh, kind of approach and a different kind of attack. It, 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 that's the stuff we actually really need to be paying mm. attention to. And I don't think actually the technology community and people like us have done a very good job of communicating uh, to everybody else why that attack on GitHub really, really matters. Yeah, that's a good point. Really and, it up. And, and if I can just go back, and if, and if you think five is a lot or however many, you ain't seen nothing yet, because this is one of the few places where additional budget is going into. Everybody is going to be getting into this. Every state guard, every state international guard. I mean, everybody that can is going to be setting. It's going to be continuing um, to set up their own cyber operations because they know they can get money. It's frankly going to be right. fun to watch. As is the you know law enforcement started to get involved in tracking uh, Tor exit nodes, putting up their own Tor exit nodes, uh, engaging in internet relay chat with the anonymous and low set <laughs> okay. guys. And it was my perception after a while that, you know, 80% of Tor exit nodes belong to some law enforcement or national agency, and 80% of the participants of these chat rooms are mm -hmm. all That's FBI agents. Point. They're all That's talking to point. each other. It's, it's the waste <laughs> on the defensive side, because everyone says, we've got to set up a lab and let's look at this malware, yeah. when there's already tons of private sector folks that are doing that. Yeah. I mean, the uh, amount wasted on, on, on the government side on defense is, I think, mm -hmm. more significant than on offense. Well, and also, just as a follow-on, aren't there a lot of private sector actors that are developing yeah. Yeah. similar capabilities yeah. to do Automated yeah. tools, there, there are bots in every one right. of those discussion groups sucking everything out. Yeah. All right, so it is the Wild West. Yep. Um, Harlan Ullman, over here. This is a great, stimulating panel. Thank you guys very much. Uh, I would like to ask you about, uh, to stretch your minds and come up with some uh, disruptive events that could be transformative. And if you want to get to the world of fiction, 
that's fine. I'll give you a couple uh, of examples. Supposing Moore's law no longer obtains. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Supposing we have the equivalent of what happened 30 years ago with Tylenol being poison, and now you've got to be a Hercules to open up candy bars. And of course, September 11th <laughs> has changed the entire security aspect of what we yeah. do. Could you speculate what might be these wild cards, really disruptive, that would change dramatically the whole notion of cyber in the future? I think an employee at NSA implausibly has keys yeah. to look at anything he damn wants to and exposes exactly how much the country that was espousing internet freedom governance and, and a lack of borders um, was, was doing the opposite. So, you know, yeah. it's really difficult to uh, predict black swans, right? That's their, in their definition. Um, and for years, you know, the Leon Panettas of the world have warned of the cyber Pearl Harbor. Um, right, yep. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've taken a, a, first of all, I'm ready to say that we're very, very close to an attack on critical infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's malware in the wild, there's vulnerabilities, there's mapping of uh, vulnerable systems, and uh, evidently there's actually some uh, ownership of the malware that can be traced back to Russia. So that is going to happen, and it will be transformative. Unfortunately, the transformation is going to be that Congress will convene and pass some sort of cybersecurity law like the same day, and it's not going to address the issue, and it'll cause everybody a lot of problems and expense, and we'll move on and we'll have more attacks of the same sort. Um, the hope is that whatever the disaster is, that it's small and contained and can be attributed quickly. Uh, most, uh, most of the uh, power grid, for instance, is very busy demonstrating that you know, they're invulnerable to cyber attack. And if there is one, they'll, they'll point the blame at a tree branch rather than just doing a bad job of what they're supposed to be doing all along. I agree with uh, both my colleagues here. I just want to add one potential. Um, twist to this that I think we probably haven't thought about enough, which mm. is if that event, we're sort of like, we're narcissistic Americans, right? So we assume that the big bad event is going to happen here in the United States. What if the big mm -hmm. bad event happens in Russia and it's attributed to Americans? Yeah. That might be a yeah. very different dynamic. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if I can take a second bite at it, because I was such a smart ass on the first one. Um, <laughs> you know, Iran, um, Indians, and Pakistanis going after each other's nuclear command and control. I mean, wow. Um, I, I testified to Congress yesterday, House Finance Subcommittee, on I think we're facing Internet's most dangerous moment right now. Um, you've got Iran and Russia who, if the talks with Iran um, uh, fall through, are competent, if not extremely sophisticated cyber adversaries who feel their regime's back is up against the wall with their economies um, in potential freefall. Uh, and that neither of them have a remaining stake in the global financial system. Mm -hmm. um, and with little reason not to just upend the table um, against us. And it's, oh, it had been a rule from the earliest days of cyber intelligence that those who have the capability to really cause a disruptive attack don't have the intent, because they know that they'd, they'd pay for it. Those with the intent to really disrupt the system don't have the capability, like terrorists. And um, for now, the first time in the 20 years we've been looking at this, we might now be having one, and especially two adversaries with Russia that might have both that in intent and capability. And if, we, if that happens, even if it's only a Sony-style attack, I am pretty convinced if we have that Sony-style attack again, that a United States president will shoot back um, in cyberspace rather than having to go through what the president went through. 
and then I think the gloves are kind of, the gloves are kind of off. And I can easily see that happening in the next 12 months. Eh, I can see it happening more like in the next 12 months than I've ever seen it before. So you'll yeah. have a 30 years war of in, in cyberspace? I, I mean, I, I think Sporadic this... Sporadic attacks here and there? This, we've had, yeah. Yeah, we've had this where nations increasingly feel it's okay to conduct disruptive cyber attacks on each other, right? Every side has been saying, and almost every side has said, there's this place between peace and war where you can just stab your neighbor underneath the table, and it, but it stayed below that level. And I'm concerned we might be in that place where it starts yeah. to get above the table and it starts to get into really dangerous territory. Now, um, I, I put together a scenario for the book that I'm publishing just next month. What's the name of that book? Do I have to really pitch no. it? <laughs> there will be cyber war. I hope you're listening, Thomas Ridd. Um, so, in the scenario is a replay of the 1995 Taiwan Straits mm -hmm. crisis, and which actually gave birth to network-centric war fighting and Admiral Archie Clemens you know, mm -hmm. implementing the internet. It was really cool. So, replay that in a, you know, some of the results of the altercation where basically we deployed a bunch of aircraft carriers, Taiwan backed down, or China backed down and everything was cool. But the lesson learned for Taiwan was the United States would come to their rescue. There's no official treaty, you know, there's just a policy as articulated by uh, George Bush um, Jr., which is, you know, we'll take, we'll do whatever it takes to protect Taiwan. On China's part, they know that we will react. So China could engage us in such a way that we react in the same way and then use all the vulnerabilities in our weapon systems in order to you know, pretty much win a battle at sea. And I'm terming that a cyber Pearl mm -hmm. Harbor. Mm -hmm. um, we had Matt Burroughs here in the third row with a question. I guess in light of everybody lurching towards cyber conflict, is there any good scenario? Do you see actually you know, cyber cooperation at an international level? I uh, on my side, I think it's very much tied to the overall governance. And this is why when we're looking at which one of these futures we're going to go to, um, one of the best predictors of which one of those we're going to go to, I think, is you know, does the UN start to work better together? Does OSCE, OECD, G8, um, uh, do US-China come to some comedy about, about how to accommodate one another? Um, do you get a different rule in Russia? Um, you know, I think if you've got, the more that you've got global governance that works well, the more you're gonna see internet governance and, and this tamping down of conflict. Is it possible that those kind of conflicts makes everyone say, oh my God, look how bad that is, we've gotta pull back a little bit? I don't, I don't see it. I mean, look what happened to the Snowden revelations here. Everyone just said, Psh, everybody hits everybody in cyberspace. That's just the way it is. It's technological determinism. That's just the way the technology is. Everyone's just gonna hit everyone else and you just have to deal with it. And I'm just afraid once it starts getting above that level that it's gonna be difficult for nations to pull back because it's so easy to be deniable enough and continue to hit others. One rosy picture I have is a country somewhere that's technologically advanced, I like to think of Finland, um, declares itself a digital free state. In other words, <laughs> you can store your data here, you can transact business here, you can move your data across this, and constitutionally we will not, which is already in their constitution, we will not snoop on your data or do anything mm -hmm. to try and intercept it. And that's good in itself, but then if that caused a competitive 
thing going where countries felt that, hey, you know, Estonia doesn't want Finland to have that advantage over them, and then Sweden jumps on board, and pretty soon you've got, you know, the, the Nordics, and yeah. maybe it would impact Canada and the United States ultimately. And, and I can almost even seeing that like the way that legalization of drugs has happened. You know, I mean, it starts happening in yeah. little pockets, yeah. and then yeah. the U.S. only says, Ugh. Yeah, exactly. So I just wanted to link this quickly, Barry, to your question before about the offense-defense balance. Like, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't call it a, a, a rosy scenario, but I do think it's possible that we could get to a fairly stable deterrent balance at, mm -hmm. high, at the high level of state-to-state mm -hmm. -state attack. Uh, I do think that as uh, more very large Chinese commercial firms come into the market and represent a set of interests that are different than the pure kind of people's Republic of China state interests, uh, you can imagine a stable offense-offense deterrent balance, which might go on for some time. It wouldn't feel great. It wouldn't feel safe. Might be like sort of the 1950s, but uh, in terms of the nuclear balance. But um, it might be it might be good enough to manage the high-level stuff, and there'd be low-level crime going on, on underneath. Remember how we thought the Arab Spring was, you know, this democratic revolution brought about by the internet? Didn't work out that way, but. Not at, the yet. Time is, at the time, it seemed like a good idea. <laughs> Not yet. They need a few more uh, decades. Um, yes, we have the question in the back. I think next. Hi, I'm uh, Lauri Tankler with the Estonian Public Broadcasting. Um, so my question is back to the, um, the n away from cyber war and back mm -hmm. to the, the future that may hopefully most of us are going to be experiencing. Uh, one of the, the key questions was uh, a secure identity and, you know, how you're not mm. able to trust each other w uh, when you're online. Uh, I have two questions. One is uh, um, the question of how do you feel about the, there's an Estonian way of, uh, you know, ID cards and uh, verifying and mm -hmm. uh, all these uh, encryption systems that, that come with that. Uh, how do you see that as a, you know, a pathway? Um, to a digital ID. And the other thing is how important in comparison to, you know, identifying yourself in real life compared to identifying yourself in, mm -hmm. in, in on, online is, so, you know, for example, you know, right now you could also pull up, pull on a mask and go rob a bank mm -hmm. and, uh, and, you know, give a fake ID at a nightclub and get alcohol. And so both of those things are illegal so should probably be, you know, faking your ID to do things online as well. So two things, mm -hmm. one about the, the system and the other about the, um, the, the notion of uh, presenting your ID at all. Mm -hmm. So I'll speak to that briefly. I think um, it, that, that uh, in many respects, we're already past the point where the anonymity that we believe we maintain is actually real. Um, it may be real vis-a-vis -vis our friends. It may even be real vis-a-vis -vis certain agencies of governments, but it ain't real vis-a-vis BlueKai and other data aggregators. So if you engage in advertisable behavior on the internet, you are already known, right? So in some sense, for the private sector, that anonymity is gone. I think if, if people understand, actually come to understand that, uh, and are able to have a sort of honest conversation about where the real risks lie. I mean, I, maybe I shouldn't sort of demonstrate my political, but I'm not worried about soldiers from the NSA knocking down my door in the middle of the night. I'm very worried about what private sector corporations buying that advertising data are going to be able to do with it over time. Um, 
-hmm. I think that uh, it may seem that the, uh, the, the barrier or the threshold to some kind of digital identity doesn't feel quite so heavy anymore vis-a-vis -vis the real benefits and risks that come with that kind of verified capacity. That's a big change from today. I recognize that. I know there's, you know, there's a need for the types of identity that Estonia is now graciously offering to the world with the e-residency, which I plan on applying for just once I check with an attorney, make sure that doesn't hurt my citizenship uh, with the U.S. Um, but you know, then if I wanted to open a branch office in Estonia, I've got you know the the uh, e-residency. It's digitally signed and it's very easy to do online, and I can just show up and have a business and do business in Estonia. Um, so I'm constantly watching whatever Estonia does, and I also you know like the idea of having multiple identities. So your identity on on Reddit or Hacker News is is pseudo anonymous. Uh, pretty you know after you post about 50 things, people know who you exactly. are because it's easy to figure out. But in the meantime, you're not allowed to, you know, the, the norm inside the community is not to expose somebody's true identity. Uh, and yeah, I'm comfortable with that. I know I, my kids are certainly comfortable with it. Great. Um, yes, in the back there. Hi, uh, Jonathan Lichman from the Providence Group. I want to get. I want to ask a point that um, a number of you had raised with regard to um, people being the biggest vulnerability. Right, eighty percent. Um, I've seen the figure of threats of, of hacks are as a result of uh, people being involved. And so, in previous conflicts, um, whether it's the beginning of the Cold War, um, or or whether it's a behavioral change issue like public health. There's been a great amount of resources and effort into public information campaigns, use of the ad council and something yeah. like that. But that's been largely dismissed on yeah. this area in which the citizenry doesn't seem to be really engaged. It seems yeah. to be a very elite debate uh, in which everybody else is actually a participant in what the threat is. And I was wondering if you would comment on that. Hmm. So for those who couldn't hear the question, you know, why isn't the citizenry more engaged a public information campaign on, on dealing with some of the challenges that we've discussed today. I think one of the issues is, you know, to, to have a click it or ticket kind of campaign is that, you know, the, there's too much noise from the advertisers who want you to buy a product or use a service. Um, mm -hmm. To have a generic campaign, hey, watch out for anybody who's selling you a service that makes you log in with a simple password. Uh, so that you know, you just couldn't spend enough money in order to create the pushback against those campaigns. So you know, and the answer when when people say, "Hey, you know, it's the the meat the issue, the the people in the organization that are primary vulnerability." I'm a strong proponent of if you ever find a situation where it is the human problem, fix it with technology. So if people are using easy passwords, don't allow them to use easy passwords. Give them a one-time password yeah. token. If people are browsing to pornography sites at work, block their access to pornography sites. It's just or, you know, or it's, fire them. We can do it. Yeah. Or fire well, I them. Guess, I guess that's <laughs> it. And and if I can invoke Saint Gear, um, one of Dan's big points is the enemy of security isn't insecurity. The enemy of security is convenience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, and that's going to kill us at the end end, end of the day. Right. And I've 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 written off half of education. I don't think it scales. I think you can continue to click on people. I mean, every time I hear someone say, well, teach people not to open links in an email or not to open attachments. Of course people are going to open links and attachments, right? I mean, to me, it's pointless education. Ask DHS how they can measure the success of stop, think, connect yep. 
we've got no way to measure it. We're really intrigued by it, though. And so and then I agree with Richard. And, and we need technology that you don't need to think through the security as much is on, in the digital natives and the generation. I mean, when I say what Estonia does, I mean, teach youngest kids in elementary school coding. Yeah. Um, start doing things that are going to scale mm -hmm. in ways that are more likely to be effective um, so that, that it comes out the other side. Yes, right here in the second row. Tim Edgar from Brown University. Oh, sorry. Yay. Uh, Tim Edgar from Brown University. I guess uh, the convenience point, I think, is, is key. And I guess the question is uh, to you, in terms of predicting future trends, to think about this in a very deep way. And that is that uh, you know, some writers like Jonathan Zittrain have pointed out that the internet you know, became the internet because uh, you know, of the network effect plus procrastination. You know, you have this powerful effect that, you know, we're just trying to solve a particular problem and then we're going to get it out there as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. If you add security to that level of problems, it's not that people, you know, are dumb or won't use it or whatever. It's just that it won't spread with the same degree of speed. It just won't. And so therefore, you know, that, that has this powerful effect that has nothing to do with any individual choice that any of us make. It's just the way the, you know, kind of the system works. And so I guess my question is, you know, can you just sort of lament that and say, okay, that means that we're stuck with insecurity and there's nothing we can do about it, um, or, or is, is there a way to change that calculus in some fashion, and if so, what is it? It, it is changing. You know, when Twitter launched, and even when I got on in 2008, um, there was no verification email, there was uh, no two-factor, and it was very easy to guess, you know, you, as a matter of fact, you didn't get locked out if you tried too many times a password, so people are cracking passwords all the time. If you launch any social media site today with that level of insecurity, uh, there'd be so much criticism that they would also have that friction on adaption. So I think, you know, we're ba taking baby steps. You know, they're not going to add, maybe they won't launch, they will launch with SSL today. It's become the thing. Uh, so that's a huge step, thank you very much, yeah. Edward Snowden, that yeah. we're getting beyond. And, and we're still on the level of largely personal or local tragedies, right? Like identity theft or like someone taking over your Twitter account. It sucks. And you know it happens, but it happens at an acceptable rate that the system can deal with. And um, it reminds me of Harlan's questions. We've had, I don't know, I mean, in the book I did two years ago, we had eight major wake-up calls. And, you know, if you've had eight wake-up calls, they're not wake-up calls. It's hitting the snooze bar, right? I mean, because things haven't significantly changed that much. And so it'll be interesting if we have those things that carry it from being a local or personal tragedy into something that, that's more immediate across a wider range. Question right over here. Hi, uh, I'm Ryan Wilbrand from the U.S. Senate. I just wanted to go back real quick to the comment that uh, Congress might be able to pass a bill in a day. Um, <laughs> if you actually could recommend uh, legislative measures that could be passed, uh, which would have the largest impact uh, on shaping the Internet of tomorrow and uh, hmm. advancing U.S. cybersecurity, uh, what would you recommend? I'd pass the breach disclosure law that yep. was first introduced in 2005. Yep. It's the only law in yeah. cyberspace that's ever had any positive impact. So. I agree with that. Uh, and I push I for it. Go ahead. Go ahead I, I would agree with that. I think that if there is... Uh, layered on top of that, a way to finally deal with the information sharing issue, uh, honestly, which is not just among companies, but between the government and companies, uh, in a way that would be workable for the agencies inside the US government that have the knowledge that they would be able to share but wouldn't want to go beyond the CISOs mm -hmm. of the companies that they need to talk to, that would be a good thing, too. I think that 
uh, I'm not for information sharing that's legislated in any way. I don't see any need for uh, any of the legislation that's been tabled so far. Um, so just as opposed to that, you know, for some reason, all of a sudden we dropped breach disclosure laws and went into this, hey, quick, let's make it legal to do what the NSA wants to do. Um, that's wasted effort and the populace sees right through what's going on. Information sharing, if it's truly about cybersecurity, happens every day with anyone who uses McAfee, Symantec, Cisco. Every single product takes all the information it learns from every customer, pulls it into a huge data center in the cloud, analyzes it, and pushes out solutions to every customer. Information sharing is already well-established technologically, and having uh, groups get together, SOWs, in order to do one-on-one -on -one information sharing, you know, you get a group over 10 people, there's gonna be a foreign agent if yeah, you're inside the Beltway you know, amongst that group, so. <laughs> that means about 10 of you are, yeah. by the way. <laughs> and, um, and, and I agree with that. I, I generally don't follow legislation because I want to get, de defense has to get better than offense. And I don't, I just haven't seen legislation that really is, really is gonna do that. However, let me, let me, the data breach is one exception. And I love the kind of regulation that data breach notification is. Data breach notification is if you know that you've been hacked and they've taken personal information, you have to tell that person. Um, Californians started 2003, yeah. I want to say, yeah. Um, and, it, and it really did change behavior. It's regulating for transparency rather than security. Yes. I love that. Um, SEC guidance should be made mandatory. Because um, right now, if a company isn't taking computer security seriously, um, if they're taking needless risks, what does the government care? All right, if they're critical infrastructure, so I, I get it. But we've got too much of DHS saying, we're gonna go and we're gonna talk to CISOs and boards. I love the spirit, but that's not the way American capitalism works. If a company isn't taking, is taking cyber risks, uh, needless cyber risks, it's the shareholders right. that lose at the end of the day. Just like if that company was taking any other kind of, of needless risk, it's the shareholders that are, gonna, that are gonna suffer. The shareholders are represented by the board. So SEC guidance right now says, if there's been a materially significant cyber incident, you should tell your shareholders in your 10K or your 10Q. Um, the way that you tell them about any other kind of materially significant incident. Mm -hmm. That should be made mandatory. Let's get the shareholders involved. Um, this isn't for Congress, but if I were DHS, I would talk to Warren Buffett and CalPERS, right? Activist institutional shareholders, right? If you can convince mm -hmm. the California pension system that they need to take cybersecurity seriously, they will go to the hundreds, if not thousands of companies, and in every one of those shareholder meetings, they'll say, tell me how you're using the NIST cybersecurity framework. Jay, how are we going to deal with the fact that uh, the stuff that's already grandfathered in, in other words, all those companies are already penetrated? Exactly. Um, Richard Baitlick has a great suggestion on this. Um, he says, you know what, you should have boards. You shouldn't go through your checklist and say how you're doing on, for example, the NIST cybersecurity checklist. You're right now, we're judging who's winning in the game by who can throw the most accurate pitches, by how fast you can run from home plate to first base. Like he's saying, let's look at the actual scoreboard to see who's winning. So the board of a publicly traded company every year should say, how many bad guys do we have in our system right now? Is it zero or non-zero groups right now in our networks? Mm -hmm. If it's zero, we're winning. If it's one, two, six, then we're losing. 
And I love that as a way to get through that. And that, that was Richard's Especially idea. Especially if, really if an organization it. could get to the point where they could say that, they're already winning. <laughs> yes, right. exactly. If right. they know yeah. that, they're already winning. Yeah. Yeah. Transparency. They can make the Speaking camera. of winning, um, unfortunately, we're out <laughs> of time. Uh, I would love to talk uh, to this very distinguished group for a much longer time. But um, unfortunately, this is over. But I think we'll be coming back to the cyber futures question in a subsequent uh, venue. But please join me in thanking our, our great panelists today. Thank you. Thank you.